Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. Now, so if you have your Bibles, we're looking at Colossians. Colossians is one of these wonderful books that Paul wrote while he was imprisoned the first time. It is referred to as one of the prison letters or prison epistles. There are four of them. The book of Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians, his letter to uh, Philemon, and this letter, Colossians, was all written while he was imprisoned in Rome. When he brings his letter to a close, I love the challenge that he provides us with that I wanted us to think about this morning. Beginning at chapter 3, looking at verse 12, Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So he's saying, put on then compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Messiah rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Messiah dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I think these are great words for us to be thinking about as we head into 2018, considering what kind of persons, what kind of congregation would the Lord want us to be? These descriptions, these challenges, these words of encouragement, I think, put in great perspective what the Lord would have us to be. And one of the challenges in life is to sort of depart from a, a waywardness, an aimlessness, a purposelessness, you know. So often we go through life, just we wake up in the morning and we consider, you know, what's going to go on today? We don't really think about what's my role today? What's my purpose today? What am I to accomplish today? We simply just go through the day, come to the end of it, and then look back and consider what has taken place. I think what God wants us to be doing is to be thinking about purposefulness. That's why he saved us, is for a purpose. And, you know, when I was living in Annapolis, 
One of my dearest friends, a fellow by the name of Bill Cox, he's gone on to be with the Lord. He was a mentor in many ways, and he was also a teacher. And one of the things he taught me, among many things, was how to sail. One of my greatest joys in life is getting out on a, on a sailboat, getting on the water, and going where you want to go, but sort of harnessing the wind no matter what direction it's coming from and enabling you to get you and your vessel safely to your, you know, your destination. One of the things he had said to me, among many things on the boat, is that when the boat is left to itself, it's going to do what it wants to do and it will not get to where you want it to go. And all one needs to do is go out on the water. And you know, when the conditions are such that there's a great deal of wind and a lot of waves and a lot of fetch and a lot of uh, tides moving in one direction or another, you take your hands off the helm, the steering wheel, you take your hands off the tiller bar, you know, whatever you're using to steer the rudder, to steer the ship, to steer the boat, and you let it just go where it will go. It does not go where you want it to go. And not only that, it gets very dangerous because now the boat can go in all kinds of directions and hit the water in the wrong kinds of angles and cause all kinds of upheaval on the water. And if the conditions are particularly violent, it can be extremely dangerous. But when you have control of the boat, no matter what the conditions are, you can really make it through some things. that I remember some of the first storms that we were in. And imagining being in a storm, I said, gee, I'd never want to get in one of those. Well, you can't sail a boat and never and avoid storms. They're going to come. So you have to sort of prepare for them, you know. And so I'll never forget one time we were reading on squalls. And when these 40, 50, 60 mile an hour gusts just come out of the sky from nowhere, as it seems, and hits the water and hits the boat, uh, what it can do to that boat. So we were studying on this. We were preparing our, pro, you know, our procedures if we were to be in a squall. And it was one summer, and they were reporting squalls on the Chase, Chesapeake Bay. So we said, this is our chance, man. Let's go out. You know? Rather than let the squall choose us, we'll choose the squall. You know? So we figure we're ready to go. The boats are coming in. We're going out to meet our squall. You know? And so we're getting out into the bay, we're looking down the Severn River, and we're seeing this wall of wind begin to turn up the water, and it just kind of come down the river, you know. And the boats that were on there, all of a sudden you start seeing them heeling over to one side, and we're seeing the bow, you know, the, the hull underneath some of these boats rising up, and we're saying, oh my goodness, what did we get ourselves into? You know, and then we said, but we've been prepared. We've been going through the process, the procedure. My job was to get onto the deck, pull down the head sail, which is at the front of the boat, you know, and then to hold on for dear life. Make sure that you get the sail down so that the wind won't catch it and then toss the boat where it wants to. My sailing buddy, Brian, his job was to get into the cockpit. Of course, he assigned us our roles, and he took the safest position, you know, in the, in, in the cockpit. And he had control of the tiller arm. He had to get the engine on just in case there was an emergency. And to direct the boat, the, the, uh, the, uh, the front of the boat, the bow of the boat, right into the storm. You've got to face it right in. So we see it coming down. We said, you know, we looked at each other, said, you guys ready? We said, yeah, we're ready. And so I run to the front. I'm dropping down. I'm tying it up. And it hits. 
you know. And when it hits, you can't see anything. The water just comes up out of like nowhere, like the water on the, on the river or the bay. It just, just, just flew up, you know. And then the wind is swirling. We can't see anything. I've got this rain gear on. I'm sopping wet inside and out. It just went right up the, uh, the leggings and right up through and just sopping wet, you know. And then it passed. And we were still up. You know, that was amazing. We still were floating, and we were in the same position we were in. We said, hey, we got it. Now we know what we need to do whenever we hit a squall. But you see, when there's aimlessness, you know, and there's not purposefulness and unpreparedness, that squall would hit, the boat would be taken, and probably would be capsized. It's not unlike, one pastor likened it to leaves. You know, you watch leaves, the wind blows, they go all over the place, but without any real purpose or any real significance. There's a lot of energy, a lot of movement, a lot of action, as you see what's going on on the water with a squall or whether with the winds blowing the leaves that are around us, but with any, without any real direction. And so the Lord would have us, as we hit 2018, not to live our next year, and we don't know how much time we have in this next year, but he would not want us to live our next year aimlessly. He wants us to live it purposefully. So here at Beth Ariel, I want to talk about our overall purpose and then to challenge us with regard to our own lives. With regard to Beth Ariel, our overarching purpose, our reason for existence, is to see that Jewish people would hear the good news. Everybody with me? Right? That's why we're here. I mean, we're here to minister to one another, to love one another, to learn from God's word together, to fellowship with one another, to serve one another, to provide for one another. We're here for one another because, as Paul says, we are one body. Right? He's the head. We are arms and legs and hands and feet and toes and and fingers. We're all of the parts. The Lord is the head. We are one body. We are here for one another. Because what would the hand be without the arm? What would the leg be without the foot? We need one another. We need to be there for one another. We need to support one another, encourage one another, help one another, come alongside one another. So we're here for one another. There's no question that that is an important concern. But our overarching reason why Beth Ariel came into existence back in the 1980s was because we wanted to be a part of bringing the good news to a people who very often are neglected in the hearing of the word of God. We want to make sure the Jewish people hear that Messiah has come, he loves them, he has died for them, he's given his life for them, and that they can have eternal life by embracing him into their hearts and into their lives. So we don't want to be an aimless congregation. Right? We want to be a purposeful congregation. So in 2018, I think we need to be thinking about what we ought to be doing to see that Jewish people hear the good news. We want all people to hear, but our purpose, our aim, as that squall is coming down, what we're looking to is to aim the bow of the ship into the heart of the Jewish people of our community. We may sail in other places and find ourselves ministering to all kinds of people. But the squall we're looking for is right down center 
And we want to reach them with the good news of Messiah. That's why we exist, right? And so we want our aim to be sharp. We want to consider what we're doing to be effective. We want to do those things and we'll try different things because we don't know what works, what doesn't, until we try, right? So as I look back on 2018, the Lord has been very merciful to us. Very merciful. You know, this time last year, there was a great deal of upheaval as we were making transitions. And we've made the transition, and here we are enjoying, you know, our worship together. And the worship this morning, wasn't it wonderful? They had everything down. The sound, the music was playing, people were worshiping. And, you know, God has blessed us and brought us to this place. The thing that really stirs my heart, though, is over the course of this past year, we have seen five people give their hearts and lives to Messiah. You know, there were years when we couldn't look back and see that. You know, there were years when we couldn't say, has anyone, you know, have we been a catalyst in somebody coming to know Yeshua as their Savior? But this year, we can, you know, because of what, God has done through the ministry here at Beth Ariel. And so that's exciting to me. So as I think about how it was that the Lord led people to faith, it was, interestingly enough, it was in the context of special events we did, because one was at Passover, two were at the showing of the film during the summer up at Valencia, one other was in one of our home groups. Not here, though. Isn't that interesting? All of our Shabbat services, whether here or up in Valencia, that's not where it happened. It happened outside, you know, somewhere else, you know, with regard to some of the special events that we have done. So maybe we should think about what kinds of special events can we do more frequently that might be helpful in Jewish people. And not all those five were Jewish, but other people hear about the good news. So we want to be purposeful, and one of the purposes for us, and the preeminent reason why we exist is we have to keep this focused in the heart and soul of ourselves, is to bring the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And of course, we're not, you know, in, we're not sort of making this up, right? I mean, even the scriptures direct us in this regard. Romans 1.16, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So we have a biblical precedent for this kind of ministry. That's not to say everybody's got to be devoted to this kind of ministry, but that's what God has called us to. But then there's another facet to it. It's not only about strategy and doing things. It also has to do with who we are and what kind of people we become. And that's where this passage in Colossians, I think, is so powerful. So draw your attention to it one more time with me, would you? Look again at chapter 3. I want you to notice that Paul is telling us in verse 12 to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, a forbearance with one another, and a forgiving heart toward one another. Now, before he says those things that we're to put on, look what he, how he describes us. He's writing to this congregation at Colossae. These are not Jewish people, although there are some Jews that are here. And Colossae is an interesting city. It's in Asia Minor, so that's like modern-day Turkey, toward the, east, uh, the western uh, coast of, of Turkey. 
It wasn't far, interestingly enough, from Laodicea, one of the letters that we read of written in the book of Revelation. And Paul, by the way, when he writes this letter to the congregation at Colossae, he tells them, you see this at the end of the letter, to make sure that they show this letter to the congregation at Laodicea. And then he says, make sure you read the letter I sent to Laodicea as well. Now, we don't have his letter to the Laodicean congregation, but we have his letter to the Colossian congregation. What that tells us is the letters that Paul wrote, more often than not, were letters that were to be circulated. Even though they were written to a particular congregation, they were for all, all, a whole number of congregations. And we know specifically that this letter was intended for the congregation at Laodicea as well. Even though when he writes this letter, he writes about specific things going on in Colossae. But he expects that those in Laodicea would gain some insight from what he has to say to the congregation at Colossae. Which also tells us that all of these letters have a relevance to you and I, even though we may be separated not only by geography, but also by time. Now notice this, in verse 12, he calls the congregation at Colossae three things I want you to see, because these things are relevant to you and I as well. He tells them that they are God's chosen ones. He tells them that they are holy And he tells them they are dearly loved by God. Now, what's interesting about these three things, these are the three terms that are oftentimes used in the Hebrew Scriptures to speak about God's particular love and relationship to the nation of Israel. Israel is called the chosen people, the elect people. You know what it means to be chosen, right? God just indiscriminately, purposefully, But in accordance with his own will, he chose the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be his special segregated people unto himself. For whatever purpose, he chose them. And now God is saying in a similar way, maybe not even as similar as is proper, maybe in the exact same way, he's saying like Israel who is chosen by God, elect by God, set apart by God, so are you. Now, that's true of the congregation of Colossae, but remember, the congregation of Colossae are the people in that congregation. So he's saying the believers in each one of these congregations are there by the sovereignty of God and his own elective choice. Now, I know that's mysterious and complicated, and sometimes we react to that. But here's something that Paul speaks of in a very cherished sort of way. We are ones God has set his love upon. And we are ones that God has chosen out of all others in the world. And so God has chosen you. And so as ones who recognize, and even if we don't recognize it, Paul is saying this is true. As ones chosen by God, we are to live a certain way. Not only because we are chosen by God, but look what he also says. We are made holy by God. To be holy means to be separate. And so to be holy means to be separated unto God and separated from the world. That's what holiness means. It doesn't only mean purity. 
It doesn't mean sinlessness. It means to be set apart. That's what holiness is. Now, God's desire one day, his purpose in our lives is to make us sinless. One day we will be sinless. As hard as that is to imagine, one day we will never, ever do anything that is dissatisfying to God or disobedient to him. There's going to come a time when we will no longer struggle with obeying God. We will just obey him. We will be like, in the fullest sense of the word, the angels in heaven. They don't know what it is to disobey God because they never have. Now, demons have, but angels never have disobeyed God. They don't know what it is to do anything other than follow in his ways. That's why they look at you and I, according to Peter, that they look at us intently. They are watching us and sort of, they're not dissecting us, but they, they are observing us like a detective would observe a crime scene because they are learning something at a distance. They're learning about this mysterious miracle of forgiveness. They're learning about this mysterious reality called redemption because they don't experience it personally. They don't have to because they've never sinned. So they look upon us and they say, how is it possible that a person, a created entity of God, can sin against them and then be forgiven and fully accepted with the promise of being exalted far above where we are at. How is that possible? How does it work? And for all of these generations, for all these thousands of years, they've looked upon us to learn this. You would think over all that time they would learn it, but it is so deep, so mysterious, so miraculous, it's not something that can be learned in an eternity of time. And it's something that is continually observed and just marveled over. So the Lord says, look, I've chosen you. And not only have I chosen you, but I have separated you out. And I've set you apart. And one day, you will be completely sinless. One day, we will be completely purified. But we are presently separated from the world in this process and we are presently separated unto God, united to him, linked to him forever and ever and thus we have not just life but eternal life. And so he says, because you are chosen and because you are set apart by God for all these beautiful things and because you are deeply loved, One of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Deuteronomy 7 where the Lord says, I have chosen you, not because you are the greatest of all peoples, talking about Israel, but simply because I loved you. Why did you choose me? Because I loved you. There's nothing else I could say, nothing else God says. It's simply that he loved us. And that's why John 3.16, for God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that you would never perish, but have everlasting life. He loves us. So these three terms that are used for Israel, 
Paul now says is also true for you and I. We are dearly beloved. We are set apart. We have been chosen. And now because of that, this is the motivation. You know, so often we are challenged to live a righteous life so that we would have a better life. So often we're challenged to live a righteous life so we could avoid all the pitfalls that come as a result of sin. So often we're told live a righteous life because then you'll get along better in the world or you'll be looked upon more respectfully. That's not Paul's issues at all. Paul simply says we should live this kind of life because of what God has done for us. In other words, the kind of life we are to live is really to be a a manifestation of our gratitude for what he's done for us. Our problem is we don't realize what he's done for us. And the reason for that is we don't reflect on it. The angels are reflecting on what God has done for us for thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of years. And they continually are mesmerized by it. We're the ones experiencing it, and we just take it for granted. That's because of our sin. You know, it's all the things that distort us. So Paul is now sort of bringing us back to reality. Remember, you're chosen by God. Remember, you're set apart unto God. Remember, you are deeply loved by God more than anyone could ever love you. And so therefore, he says, put on these things. And the things he tells us to put on to sort of, I think the King James says, clothe yourself. What he means to say is, characterize yourself by these things. Let these things be the kinds of things that define the kind of person you are and who you are. And so when people see you, they see these characteristics, these qualities. And each one of these qualities, if you look at them slowly, they're the qualities of Messiah, right? They're the characteristics that characterize him. In fact, one word here, interestingly enough, the word kindness is the word Messiah uses when he says, you know, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is, what's the word? But you know what the word is? My yoke is kind. It's the same word here, translated kindness. So when he says my yoke is easy, so what does it mean for a yoke to be easy? Well, if you're thinking of an oxen yoke or something, you would say it's light. But you know, the rabbis spoke of the teachings of a given rabbi as he understood how a particular law was interpreted was considered the yoke of the rabbi. And it's what defined you as belonging to this rabbi as opposed to that rabbi because of his particular point of view. Follow me? So when Yeshua says, my yoke is easy, what he means to say is, my teaching and, my, and the understanding and the lessons are permeated by kindness. And that's what God says, right? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, what is mercy? Mercy is a manifestation of kindness. And what is kindness? It's being nice to others. It's being easy with others. 
It's not holding people to hard standards. It doesn't mean we don't hold people to standards. It doesn't mean there isn't accountability. But it means that when we even hold people accountable, we do it with mercy. And we do it with love. And we do it with kindness. Because our Messiah's yoke is kindness. So if there's a quality or a characteristic which is meant to characterize our Messiah, it is being kind. Being kind-hearted. Which means giving people space to make mistakes. And when the mistakes are made, forgiveness is being offered, you know. So he says here, look, because you are chosen, because you are beloved, because you are set apart, you need to clothe yourself. You need to put on the characteristics that characterize Messiah. And what are those characteristics? That means you need to have a compassionate heart. It means that we need to be kind. We need to be humble. We need to be meek, which Remember, Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. Remember, uh, Messiah says, blessed are the meek. It says he, he calls, he, when he comes into Jerusalem as Israel's king, he's sitting on a donkey, meek and lowly. It means that we don't hold our positions over somebody. We use our positions in service to others. And so he says, we are to put on patience. This word patience, by the way, in the Greek, it's macrothumia, macro, you know, something great. Thumia means great endurance. So patience means we endure things for a long period of time. We endure things greatly, deeply. And so we put ourselves to work in not giving up. When it gets really tough, we keep pressing forward and pressing on. And so he goes on to say, and of course, that leads to the ability to forgive one another, right? Because forgiving means we don't hold someone accountable for their wrongdoing. Why? Because we exhibit kindness. But now these are the last things I wanted to point out. Now, above all these, he says, put on love, which is a sacrificial caring for one another, which binds everything together in, I love this phrase, perfect harmony. It is love that enables all of this to work, you know. That's what retains the unity of the congregation. That's what uh, enables, you you know, there's a group of us that are going through some leadership uh, training, challenging uh, advising, and we've met uh, twice now. There's about nine of us that are going through this. And one of the things that uh, this fellow who is guiding us in this process uh, pointed out, he said, the thing that hurts leadership teams more than anything else is the inability to work through differences. And that's not just on a leadership team. That could be expanded on any team, you know. The inability to work through differences. Because what happens is when there's differing points of view on whatever it is, we don't exercise love in the midst of that self-sacrificial love that Paul says here creates perfect harmony. Well, what's perfect harmony? It's the opposite of you know, disunity, right? So the reason 
unity doesn't emerge is because the inability to give up on our differences and then come to a place of agreement, right? So what do people normally do? I mean, it happens all over, uh, is when someone doesn't like something that's going on, it's not a commitment to work through it. It's a decision to say, I'm out of here, you know? So what happens is you can't have unity where there's absences, right? You can't create unity when people just say, well, I'm just not going to, be, to make unity. I'm not going to maintain unity. Another expression Paul uses in Ephesians, interestingly enough. I'm not going to maintain unity. I'm just not going to deal with this. And so people go, you know, and they leave. Or they um, no longer participate in a certain commitment that maybe they made or a service that they're involved with. The inability to work through one's differences. And so Paul is saying here, look, the thing that will enable one to work through differences is love for one another. And when there's love for one another, it can produce perfect harmony despite the differences that are there. And so it's a challenge. But if we're going to go forward, remember, we don't want to be aimless and sort of we're just sort of wobbling through the waters we have a purpose our purpose is to make sure jewish people hear the good news our purpose is to minister to one another to love one another and to be a kind of congregation in which we care for one another right those are our two things we've got to do we've got to make sure that we're together and we've got to make sure that we're accomplishing the task for which we exist is to make sure that jewish people hear and now paul says the way we're going to be able to do this is by remembering what God has done for us. He's chosen us, he's loved us, and he has separated us unto himself. So because of what God has done for us, we want to put on the characteristics that characterize God himself and characterize our Messiah. And to the degree to which we are doing that, we will love one another, forgive one another, and we'll be able to accomplish our task while building up who we are as one body. Now, Paul then brings us to a conclusion where he says this. So therefore, verse 16, the result of this, and this is kind of cool because he says in verse 12, put this on. But now look what he says in verse 15. He doesn't say put anything. Now he says, and let the peace of Messiah rule in your hearts. See, when you devote yourselves to uh, putting on these characteristics Because what happens is events occur and now a choice has to be made. You know, am I going to be kind? Am I going to be compassionate? A choice has to be made. But when you make that choice, the natural result of it is, he says, the peace of Messiah will rule your hearts. So he's saying, look, for you to have your own benefits, things that will personally benefit you, let the peace of Messiah rule your hearts. How do we get the peace of Messiah? Well, you have to choose to be characterized by Messiah. So when you exhibit kindness, it's like, I'm not disturbed inside anymore. You know, when you choose to be compassionate, you choose to be forgiving. Isn't that true, you know, when you, you got this stuff going on inside, when finally you say, you know what, I'm just going to forgive and allow this to go into the, you know, the past. It's no longer going to be that which is I'm holding someone accountable for. What happens inside? All of a sudden there's, hey, you know, it's like I'm, I'm at peace. Wasn't that what happened when we invited the Lord into our lives? 
and the Lord forgave us of our sin. And we felt like, wow, I felt like I, I got home, you know. I felt like everything is fine, you know. Why did I delay so long in this? Because there was a peace that just took control uh, at that moment. So when we do this, he says, then let the peace of Messiah rule in your hearts. By the way, this word rule is where we get the word umpire from. And you know what the umpire does? He calls the balls and strikes. He determines the rule of the game. So similarly, when we let peace rule over our lives, call the shots in our lives, bring peace where there was consternation and disruption. You know. So not only does he say that, but then look at this. He says in verse 16, and let the word of Messiah dwell in you richly. It's then that the truth of God's word begins to unfold before us. You know, when we live a life that is characterized by Messiah, now we look at his word, his word begins to make sense because his word points us to him. And so he's saying, let the word of Messiah dwell in you richly so that it teaches us and admonishes us in all of these aspects. And then if there is an overarching An overarching, if there was one thing that I would say this morning we leave with us. If you don't remember anything else, this is the one thing you want to remember. And that is, if our life as individuals or as a congregation is going to be significant, going to be purposeful, this is what he says. And whatever you do, you know, sort of like the climax of everything he's saying. Whatever you do, be it in speech when we talk with one another or in service, what we do with one another, he says, do it all in the name of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever you do, can we do it to the glory of Messiah? Then you're on safe territory. Whatever you do, whether it's in speech with one another, whether it's in your actions with one another, does it bring glory to our Messiah? Would he be proud of that? Would he be grateful to see that? Would he be excited that one of his brethren or the father, one of his children, has just done that? That's what he's saying. Do it all in the name of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks to God the Father. By the way, here's the last passage. If you look at, and you can turn there if you like, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in the last verse, verse, uh, well, not the last verse, but verse 31. By the way, this section in Corinthians chapters 8 through chapter 10 deals, he answers a question about food offered to idols. Is it appropriate to eat? When he comes to a conclusion of this, which it takes him three chapters to do. When you get to verse 31, this is what he says. It's very much like what he wrote in the Col- to the Colossians. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, he says, do all to the glory of God. And so there's the overarching purpose and antidote to aimlessness. Do it all to the glory of God, and his blessing certainly will fall upon you. Let's pray. 
And while I'm praying, the, the uh, worship team can come, the ushers can get ready. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, as we exit 2017 and look forward to this next year, Lord, you have done so much for each and every one of us, and you've done so much for us here at Beth Ariel. We have seen you accomplish a great deal. You found us a new home here in Tarzana. You've expanded our ministry up in Valencia. You have added numbers to your family as we've seen people come to faith. We have seen individuals grow in their faith because of the home groups that we have had. Lord, we have seen special events. We have seen people stand up and serve in areas they have never done before. We've seen you provide for us financially, and we are grateful for how you've continued to provide our financial needs, that our ministry can continue to be effective and can continue to operate and continue to serve. We are grateful for all the good things you have provided for us. We are grateful for one another, how we have been enabled to be there alongside of one another during times of trials and difficulties. We have lost some precious members and precious souls from our congregation that you've brought into your very presence. And we are grateful for the years that we have had with them here. We're thankful for their legacy. We're thankful for their memory. We're thankful for their service because without them, we wouldn't be where we are right now. And so, Lord, we've seen a lot of things happen in this past year. And so what does the future hold? We pray, Father, that you would help us as a congregation collectively and as, individu- as individuals, as p- parts of this congregation. Help us, Lord, to not enter and to go through the next year in an aimless sort of way. Help us, Father, as a congregation to maintain the purpose for which we exist, that your Jewish people would hear the good news. May we be faithful in making that a priority and seeking to do it faithfully. And then help us, Lord, as your people, as your chosen ones, as your holy ones, as your most beloved ones, help us to love one another. Help us to serve one another. Help us to put on the qualities and characteristics of our Messiah, not only to be a light unto the world, but to be a light to one another. And help us thereby, Father, to let to allow your peace to rule in our hearts. May we allow the word of Messiah to dwell in us richly. And thereby, Father, may we truly love one another, live in harmony and in unity, in service for your great name's sake, we pray. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.